Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 61. This is another side quest, this time on um, Castle in the Sky, Hayao Miyazaki's 1986 feature film. And we're back with Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time now, and I'm happy to be talking to you all the more regularly now that it's summer and um, I, I would say one funny thing is that in this new location I'm in for the next couple weeks, uh, at the beginning of my vacation, there are other people who cohabitate with me. And I have been told that when I podcast, I am much too loud. And so like I was <laughs> thinking about your podcast this last week, when you mentioned both the books, Homo Ludens and Play Anything, that part of creating a game is creating artificial constraints in order to create a novel situation, which can lead to, you know, kicking on new genes for a human because you're in a new situation which you have to adapt to. Uh, my initial constraint this time is that even if I get very excited, which I often do while speaking and thinking, I am to keep the uh, my voice at a reasonable level, which uh, I have a totally warped idea of what's reasonable because of lecturing all day and a fairly sound <laughs> classroom. And so and so I, I hope I st still sound natural. I'm still very enthusiastic and happy to be speaking, even if it seems like I'm in a hushed tone. You can imagine that maybe I'm, I'm like a, a far less brave version of a reporter who's trying to report something under adverse conditions where if he speaks too loudly, like some insurgent force will find him and do something terrible to him. Um, right. except, except for here, that would be more like an, a psychological or simple emotional scarring from a family member. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not, not quite the same, but yeah, uh, but, not negligible. But just to jump into Castle in the Sky, that does seem to be, that is one of the underlying themes, mo motifs, light motifs of the, or of, the mo of the movie that uh, there is the negative evil Cain-like brother, the unknown brother, Muska, the spy for uh, the yeah. emperor who actually serves his own selfish interests. And like Jafar and Aladdin wishes to uh, take the power of the genie or the power of... Um, the rational intellect that the scientific discoveries from Laputa, his home and to exploit them for his own selfish, immoral value free interests. Whereas his, his sister or, or cousin or just family member, um, our yeah. protagonist, who is again, a young lady as it often is with Hayao Miyazaki. Does he ever have, um, I mean, I guess Ashitaka was one of his male protagonists, but in spirited away, it's a female protagonist and how's moving castle. Uh, it's a female protagonist in Porco Rosso. I suppose it's a male, uh, though the ladies play a giant role. And then again in uh, My Neighbor Kiki. Totoro, Kiki, of course. Yes. So, yeah, that's a really interesting thing that Hayao Miyazaki does. They're often using uh, female protagonists like lawyers often use the, the third person singular pronoun she when writing, mm -hmm. writing. I like that sort of homage. But Back to the idea, the idea being that there is this negative evil sort of brother, this Luciferian brother who covets the power of the past in order to create a, a terrible, um, tyrannical sort of Star Wars empire, like ordered future, right? That is subject completely to his whim. And we've seen with those robots, just their utter power to destroy everything around them in the mining town. When they shoot the lasers out of their eyes, game over. <laughs> That seems to be right. something of a commentary on where we have been and where we go to and just how evil or, or how much evil can easily be done with the powers 
of our intellects, with the tools that we have produced through our, our brilliance, our Luciferian brilliance, like, you know, yes. machine guns and, of course, nuclear weapons and chemical weapons and yeah, psychological the, weapons. The connection to Star Wars, well, not only the giant laser beam blowing everything up, uh, but also, of course, we got to mention that Muska is voiced by Mark Hamill in, the, in the English which is really, I mean, fascinating to think about um, that little tidbit of that, that connection there. Uh, and the, um, the crystal element of it also makes me think of the Final Fantasy games, right? Because you have the same yes. kind of thing where every, every one of those games, you start off with the crystals, which represent the balance and order of the world, which are being uh, suddenly taken over by some nefarious um, evildoer who you later learn more about. You, you sort of see that mm -hmm. person's side of the story to an extent, but only so that you can see how, how wrongheaded they are in their, in their pursuit of um, a kind of narrow view of progress or something like that, right? So yeah, it's, it's brilliant um, the way that uh, the, the robot fell out of the sky and was found broken and and um, Shita, as she's called, falls out of the sky in sort of the opening scene, yes. uh, escaping from Moose. So they're sort of akin in that way. And she finally, you know, she's horrified by the by the robot's destructive power, but she does seem to see their their kinship as well, because of course, in in, in buried in her memories is is the words of destruction. She and she sees the beauty in the in the robots too when she first makes it back up to Lapida, and she mm, sees yeah. they have a caretaking element to them. They have, mm. they ha they seem to have some sort of empathy. They're not simply beings of pure destruction. That yeah. there's another side to them, and perhaps that's a projection of how we are not just beings that produce destruction, but there's another side of us. Even though we, in in at least in the Castle in the Sky, the the Laputians who seem to be humanoid, given that our main character is very much human-like, they they seem to have use their minds to create beautiful gardens and a beautiful celestial place above the clouds, but also terrible um, implements of war. And it, it reminds me, it makes me think that not only Star Wars, but also this movie is suggesting that the wars on earth begin in heaven in a Miltonian ah. way, that to fight in a castle in the sky is a metaphor for to fight in heaven, which is a metaphor for, a fight between two ways of thinking and thus being in one's mind. And one will be defined as good and one is evil, depending on which has a better effect in the world defined in the sort of Maslow biological ways, like what mm. prosperity and ability to pursue one's own free values. Um, and yeah, the, that seems like a pretty place to start going. No, there's, there's, there's evidence kind of throughout the film um, that uh so so moving to the um the character who catches uh, her as she's falling they call him uh, patsu right so patsu yes he knows you know from his stories his his dad told him he knows that there's this mysterious place um beyond the clouds yes. uh his dad who's just like kamaji as you mentioned yesterday oh the, yeah yeah the um that's the uh or his yeah, the engineer guy looks just like Kamaji, and you know works in the in the dank and the hot. Uh, yeah, and we, we get we get again this contrast between the mundane and the sacred, or the 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 underworld sort of heart region, like with Komaji, and the yeah. upper world, the 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 what it what is the name? the penthouse where the clouds are with uh, 
a queen Cloud Panama City. figure. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. I, you know, thinking about the, um, the, the place where Patsu actually lives, though, it's this mining place and you see the evidence. It's kind of subtle until when the camera zooms out, you can see better the all the pockmarks of long forgotten um, battles. You know, there's these these rolling hills, which which actually look like the craters of enormous ballistics that, that must have rained down at some point. So it seems like what might have just why they were mining. Yeah, right. So you dig down. Uh, yeah, but so what might have happened is something like the um, the Laputian, which I think is a, a name that comes actually from Gulliver's travels. Uh, from yes. So they might have sort of, uh, they might have gotten to a point where they um, re sort of renounce the destructive power of their technology. And it seems like that's that's sort of the point at which the, the floating city is overrun overgrown by by the uh by nature again right so it's like the the laputians have have dwindled they've they've receded into the the mountains right that's where she grows up and her grandmother uh tells her these stories of what it was like um and so they sort of they they hide themselves they conceal themselves they let their powers uh fade and and their city remains there and is overgrown um by, by this giant tree, right? And even their, their, machines, yes. their machines become characters you know, of it, yeah. That's so interesting because that activates spontaneously in my mind the archetype of the golden age, which you yeah. see uh, not only here, but also in Elder Scrolls Three: Morrowind, the idea of a race before which was superior in some way and has disappeared precisely because of that though it turns out that they destroyed themselves so i'll say that's the negative version yeah um, um but also of um let me see of when i think of final fantasy 7 which i know we'll be talking about video yeah. games very soon and so in final fantasy 7 slightly different from from some of the more traditional games and this was like the breakout game that infused science as well as magic together with uh, incredible effect, which is, you know, what Maslow is essentially attempting to do by redefining what religion and science are so that science can have values and religion can continue to search for truth, which sounds just spectacular, yeah. which is perhaps what we're doing. Um, synthesis but there, yeah. in, in Final Fantasy VII, there was once a race of people called the ancients who were at one with the earth. They could listen to the earth. And what's interesting is that Muska, who is a Laputian, mm -hmm. rejects that mode of being because when he gets up to the castle, whenever he sees uh, nature having overgrown any part of the beautiful machinery created, he, he becomes angry and says, get this filth away, showing that orderly tyrant or that Luciferian reality, no connection to nature. And yeah. so he seems to be the embodiment of the the whole reason why the Laputians gave up um, their yes. heaven sort yes. of place. Um, yes, and she seemed, yeah, go on. No, I just want to throw in the word uh, deracination, right? He, yes. He's in, yeah, chamber, he's in the chamber of the, the giant crystal that powers the flight of, of the city. And he, uh, and he sees that it's overgrown as well. And he, and he cries out, right, roots, roots. And I just thought yes. that was so brilliant because, well, of course, you know, that's what he's, he, he wants to, to cut up away um, humanity's uh, connection to, 
to the body, to nature, to earth, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and in so doing, of course, he undercuts his own, his own, uh, his own, his own vision. Right? He 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 he's blind. He's blinded at the end of the film. It's it's fantastic. That's right. And if you think about exactly what his day to day might be, being in a floating castle which he rules unilaterally, <laughs> it's like what's he doing? He's alone in a castle where he's served by robots. So he's essentially Hephaestus from the Iliad with his golden androids, and he can shoot lasers down from that in order to tyrannize the world below what's missing from that is any sort of connection to the feminine he's totally missing that which connects a man to the world and thus to a meaningful life and it's right in front of him in fact that i think that's one of the great lessons from this story and there are many in it is that even though he finds his blood relative who is also a laputian and he could share in the finding of this city together with her and potentially uh, bring its secrets back down to the world. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe that would work. Maybe that wouldn't, given the motives of the king from whom he's working and attempting to trick in a worm tongue like way. But even in finding a family member, you would think that that would be the tremendous discovery right. of his life. That that would be that finding somebody to share this with would be one of the more meaningful aspects of his journey, but it's not. He just sees her as yet another person to use as a tool instrumentally. Yeah. Yeah. One of the darkest moments in the film for me is when he tricks her into telling Patsu to go away, right? This is right before yes. the robot uh, starts oh. wreaking havoc, right? Which is, which is fantastic. Cause yeah. Um, I mean, Patsu, uh, he's, he's imprisoned. He's trying hard to escape. He can't escape. And then they, that he can have this 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 um, face-to-face meeting with Shita where she tells him to leave her, right, to go away. And this is under mm-hmm. the manipulation, the manipulation, right, the, the tool-using capacity of Musco, of course. Um, so to, 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 to show that, in a sense, he is he's jealous of her, um, but it's more, I think, is his, his kind of sadistic delight at seeing the two of them separated. That 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 just makes it a very uh, it's a it's a it's a terrible you know moment in the movie. Well, that seems to be powerful, and that seems to be how he uses the logos always as a representation of the dark aspect or the Luciferian. He always uses it to separate and to divide, right? Seeing as he has no eros aspect, no ability to connect and doesn't see meaning in connection with others. Not only does he want to sever his physical, emotional, um, and uh, and even, uh, well, his physical and emotional connection to the world. Like he's literally going to be on a castle in the sky that can shoot lasers down <laughs> at the world. He, he also wishes to sever those connections between people. Yeah. Uh, he's like the reverse of a psychopomp. Rather than connecting life and death or consciousness and unconsciousness in a process of transformation, he seems like an like um, the fate um, Atropos, mm-hmm. who is uh, who is who is uh, charged with severing the yeah. thread, which strikes me as sort of an ignoble um, aim for the highest uh, function of man. Seen as you know, there's this story about the Buddha that I heard from Alan Watts, which is that he was walking down a path once, known for having thieves and robbers and murderers along it, and a famous murderer caught him and said okay well i'm going to kill you now and but you get one last request and the buddhist 
looked at this tree off to the right of him and he said, go cut that branch off the tree. And the murderer thought, okay, kind of a weird last request, but I'll honor the custom. And he goes over and cuts the tree off. And then the Buddha says, now reattach it. <laughs> and supposedly the, the man was converted to his way. The idea being that though you have such great strength and power, your, your aim is so low that you fail to manifest your greatest possible abilities. Mm-hmm. You're not blooming or self-actualizing because the only way you self-actualize, this is a point Maslow makes, is by, is by pursuing the highest possible aim. And so he believes in a psychological dynamism. This is Maslow. And this is something that Peterson gets criticized for, but he gets it directly from Maslow. So I would recommend his critics to read some Maslow. Um, <laughs> Maslow makes a distinction between what's called your B or being personality and your D or deficient personality. And he says that all men and women see each other both symbolically and actually. And so your deficient way of seeing somebody is by like all their clear deficiencies. They use the restroom. They eat sort of weird. They don't clean up after themselves. They scratch their butt every now and then. All the things that make them crude, vulgar, profane. Hmm. But you can also see another person in their being aspect. And that's their archetypal or ideal or symbolic. Like when you see them working, it's like you see all men of all time working. Um, When you see them striving and exercise. It's like a hero or a soldier, you know, improving himself to make himself stronger. You know, when you see a woman in childbirth, you see a figure of like Hecate or Artemis of mother nature mm. that that which we now consider sort of crude and blase actually is deeply symbolic and meaningful. And in fact, that is where the meaning of life exists. Yeah. And so in attempting to reduce everything to a crude uh, behaviorism, or materialism, um, or just like Muska to power displays, then we miss that which makes life meaningful, which yeah. is the most important part of life. Go on. The story of uh, the Buddha and, and then kind of clarifying the, the distinction between the materialistic and the, the power hungry and how those two things connect but aren't necessarily overlapping all the time it makes me think of the way that we see at the end um, the, um, the, the men, the soldiers, right? They go for the treasure. Um, they go in and just start yes. to loot the city as much as they, they can carry. Uh, Muska, of course, uh, under, under the, the chaos of that going on, sneaks off and goes for the, what to him is the ultimate prize, right? The, yes. the basis of, of the power of the city, which he can then turn to this, fairly ignoble end that he seems to have or maybe he just hasn't thought it out that far but anyway right yeah but so those two things uh those those don't you know exhaust the possibilities because i think both of them you can sort of turn around and see the other side of right you see the um the the pirates right who have a uh the the pirates who have a a materialism but it's it's not um, it's not so. It's not so greedy. It's not so uh, cold. I suppose you'd say something like they that. They seem to have some ethics, some sort of code of honor or behavior. Yeah. And they're and they're a family, and they're and so in that sense they're they're rooted. And then you can see um, uh, Shida and Patsu, right? They both aspire to something, but their goals are not the kind of um, again cold, destructive, 
and uh, proud ones that that uh, Muska represents. So, so you sort of see a really beautiful um, kind of like contrast, and it's it's quite intricate actually when you start to look at it. So, I I really like that um, that laying out of of the alternatives there, and how you can sort of see the flip side of both of them. And I, I also like I, I, I like how you mentioned that sort of like the level of sophistication of the characters on Laputa shows that Laputa could be something like a vision of an afterlife or a heaven place or or like a cave of wonders where you get to pursue whatever it is that you most desire. And so what do most of the men pursue? Physical gold, just like the men down on the earth were trying to produce additional uh uh, ore, iron, mm -hmm. they were mining. They were mining the earth for physical things, which would lead to symbolic things like wealth. But so most of these people, they went for just what was physical, what they could see with their eyes and hold with their hands. Uh, Muska seeming to be more capable of abstraction or symbolic representation or understanding better that which produces things which have value and mm -hmm. can be sold for value goes for the sort of mind of Laputa. He goes for the crystal, or you might say the crystallized knowledge that has been acquired by them, their map of reality. He wishes to, to take that from tradition, would, would, and in mastering tradition, he would become master of that which is currently alive. But what, what our main character uh, gets from Patsu, what she finds in Laputa seems to be like trust something mm -hmm. even more abstract or or love or uh responsibility for the world enacted by taking or or yeah taking responsibility of the world through taking responsibility for caring for someone she loves yeah. it's almost as if laputa is only it's only the background for the relationship which becomes real based on it, it makes me think that all games are therefore like they don't exist for themselves but for humans to sharpen themselves and to know themselves by competing with each other and relating to each other through. Yeah. Um, well, it's that the, yeah. Oh no, finish up. No, I, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not sure how to say that one quite right yet. So you better talk. <laughs> I was just, it strikes me that their relationship is quite interesting in that um, we see, again, it's the same kind of thing I was just talking about. We see the same action take place where she tries to send, him away but it's done in such mm -hmm. a different right she this time it's because she's um attempting to um rescue the crystal and spare the world uh the wrath of of muska right so she's she's sending him away but it, it's it's under such different auspices and this time uh of course he he mans up and he and he doesn't leave without her right so he he has he has grown as well he um so their relationship within the the constraints of the game, um, you can see, you can sort of measure how, how much deeper and stronger it's become uh, over the course of the film. And the, the two individuals have grown. You, you see this kind of symbolically with her pigtails um, being lopped off there at the end, right? So she's, she somehow, um, you know, matures. Uh, and then of course with him, you know, he's, he's doing the heroic thing. He's not, he's not abandoning her, even though she told him to, which is great. And, and he's essentially done what? Like, exactly like Mario, he has stormed the castle in the clouds, mm. fought against 
the dragon, which is the fire or laser producing Muska, and, <laughs> and defeated him in order to get the treasure, which is not just gold treasure or even power, but, but rather a relationship with, um, you know, woman, with Mother Nature, with this anima figure who first came down from heaven and rejected him. It's almost as if, and this is, this is highly speculative, not, not that much of what I say is not, but <laughs> um, that um, almost rather than giving in to their human nature, what both of the characters there are forced to do is to, fu- is to go against their nature because of their love for the other. Mm-hmm. And so though she, she operates the selection mechanism of say a human or a Laputian, by, by loving Patsu for being so heroic and wanting to choose him, she has to turn him away in sort of a, a negative uh, Pietas version. Instead of giving what she wishes to him, what he deserves, she takes from him what he deserves. And what he has to do is deal with the fact of rejection by nature and then to not become resentful, but to, to actually become more masculine, more dominant because of it, to, to harden himself against that experience and, and thus to push through it to where he, he becomes so much more that he is accepted rather than rejected, even though that was her conscious intention. As if, as if truly, yeah, go on. The, the way that they, pushing through, right, that image of them in the, the little gyropter uh, kite thing flying through the, the windstorm, right? They, they together, um, they persist, yeah. they endure, yes. Just like Penelope and Odysseus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. and in their specific ways that it have to be specific to them because of their highly differentiated natures right and and there's some overlap i guess um you know in the beginning she doesn't really have like a memory and and in some sense the the her development as a character is her um recovering those memories uh and sort of making sense of them in the light of of actual events right like the, the songs that she was taught and how they're actually spells that will take her home. Whereas with Patsu, it's like all he has is this memory handed down from his father and his whole trajectory is, is about like constructing the means to actually, to actualize that thing. So it's, it's a really interesting way in which each sort of has what the other doesn't and until they both, you know, share what they have with one another and, and they've both kind of grown together. And they're they're physically like lassoed together at that one scene when they land on uh, <laughs> on, on the grass. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah, no, I I did very much like that, and I I do like those sort of um, Adam and Eve sort of comparisons you're making, as if they have they're built for different sort of reasons in order to complement each other, in order to expand their mutual domains of expertise. That seems to be a Miltonian point, where he makes explicitly the claim that females, like many females in the animal kingdom are made more beautiful than man and, you know, less strong. And mm-hmm. uh, there's even some evidence now that um, women, women's brains from functional MRI scans seem to use different brain regions in problem solving than mm-hmm. men's. This is interesting. I found that in the Neuroscience of Intelligence by Dr. Richard Heyer. And so hmm. I, I recently read an article that suggested that, well, which is true, that on most normal distributions, men and women are mostly overlapping because, of course, we're the same species, so we're mostly the same as each other. But it's precisely at the tail ends of those distributions where all the difference happens. And those findings happen to be based on not a functional MRI, which looks at how the brain works, but structural MRI images, which just looks at brain structures. 
And so it doesn't care about what's actually happening in the brain at that specific moment. And so Milton's idea about Adam is that he is built um, for strength slash combat and, um, and for, for virtue or for rational thinking. And so that it's sort of interesting that Patsu then would have that sort of that means oriented nature suggesting that like sort of the value or the initial, the initial values in consciousness come from say the lady, like how Eve ate the apple first, but then the way of sort of conferring that value or transforming that value or embodying it or starting to produce it in the world might come from some tool that man could that man could produce or something like that. I, I wonder to what extent that's what society and culture always has been, right? Yeah. Like, why is it created? Obviously, to, to defend something of incredible value. What is the most valuable thing in our society? Our women and our children. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why men are willing to die for them. And, you know, they take, they take on the most dangerous jobs. Like, I think all stone workers are men, uh, many electricians, outdoor, anything like fishermen. Um, police officers, firemen, soldiers, of course, mostly men. And I, think, and I think that's not because um, of some prejudice thinking, <laughs> thinking, I don't even know how to state that correctly. I think it's precisely because they know what's most valuable in all the world. Hmm. Um, it's, it's, a tr- it's a tricky thing to, to, to parse out sort of um, rationally, which is, which is fun because uh, what you see with the with the dynamic between um, Dola, right, the boss, the, yes. the pirate boss, and her her husband, the uh, Kamaji figure who who tinkers and has built the ship, right? Like neither of them like understands the whole picture, right? Because her job is to actually raid and like grab stuff and run, a, and you know she's like the actual pirate, but she couldn't do that without the tools that he has produced, right? And, and you see That's this right. really this beautiful scene where the two of them are. Are talking about what's going on between uh, Patsu and Shita, and yes. uh, and there's so much that's left unsaid in in that scene, which I just think is, is quite sophisticated, you know, for a kids' movie. But I, I think it's just really well done. They're, they're a little well, it strikes uh, me the as two extraordinarily of them. valuable. Well, it strikes me as really very much extraordinarily valuable because, um, effectively, if there are two men, if like one is the sword maker and one is the knight, and effectively. They develop develop a relationship based on their shared endeavor, but their differentiated skill set. And because of their differentiated skill set, they see different aspects of the world that they can then share with each other, which creates an ever renovalizing relationship, right? Because every time Dola goes out to do something, like she's going to bring back a bunch of new information and make a bunch of new additional requests of her husband who can then build more sophisticated tools for her. And as his tools get better and better for her and she, her requests get more and more sophisticated <laughs> to him. So is their relationship going to get more and more sophisticated? And so are they going to be more meaningful to each other because they'll be more necessary to each other in an instrumental, but um, also like teleological way. Teleological because the reason they're helping each other in the first place is because they love each other. Yeah. Well, it's like you were saying before with playing, playing a game. You don't play the game because you're playing the game. You play the game because you're playing with people. In, in most cases. Right. Yeah. It's no fun without people. Everybody knows solitaire is boring. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> well, so uh, I had a question. Let me see if I can remember now what it was. I wanted to ask about, um, about the crystals a little bit more. 
Um, and what we see there, this is, this is one of the more problematic scenes for me again, and I come back to it. Uh, we see Muska sort of like the, the mask falls off, right? When he sees the big crystal and he just kind of, he kind of flips. Um, he's, he's really under control up to that point. It seems like everything's kind of going his way. Um, but then, but then once he's in, once he's like within reach of his goal, uh, he really freaks out um, by what seems like a fairly minor thing that, it, that it's sort of overgrown and um, there's these roots in the way. Uh, and what he seems to want to do, right, is to, to read and interpret the ancient um, knowledge that's contained there. Um, so to me, that really hit home because, you know, as a, as a student, as a teacher, that's what I'm all about is, is reading stuff, you know, and figuring it out and interpreting it. Um, so I want to try to like somehow make sense of this. Uh, one hand, you have the crystal, the knowledge, the, the text, which needs to be read, right? It's otherwise it's lost knowledge. And on the other hand, the actual, you know, floating city, which has this living tree on it, which is threatened by the attempt to read and use that lost knowledge. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. Well, first off, I, oh, maybe we could look at, so part of the source of Muska's power here is not just unadulterated use of the logos or crystalline or fluid intelligence or G factor on his point. Part, but he seems to have a little notebook of the secrets of Laputa that have guided him all along the way. And so he's a figure yeah. of tradition in this respect. And so he's using the tradition of the Laputians in order to, in order to retread their steps, in order to recapture the city, which he thinks by birth belongs to him. And that guides him to their treasures. And every time the current Laputia is different from his map of it as presented in that little journal. He gets upset, ah. the overgrown roots, and he sees what's changed, and he doesn't want that change to have occurred. And so I, I would say that what he sort of represents is how the intellect falls in love with its, or the rational intellect falls in love with creations. He loves that which has already been made. He loves the castle on the sky, the source crystal itself, the studies that have been produced by these people. He doesn't love the logos, which we talked about a couple of days ago, um, at, or the creative force, which, which first produced all of these wonder, wondrous creations, and even the creative force that produced, you know, the movie with these wondrous creations <laughs> within it. Um, it seems like he's, he, like the crystal, is calcified and thus is impotent to move forward into the world. Um, he lacks the um, I, integrated nature or the unified nature. Yeah, that, that, makes, uh, sense. that makes sense. Yeah. It, it seems like his opportunity um, in that moment is something like to, to accept his own loneliness or something like that, right? Like, is that the is that the 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 thing that he's um, like bowled over by in some sense is like this 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 incredible weight of responsibility that he feels as the only one because he doesn't realize that you know his his kin is right there and ready to you know help him as long as as soon as he accepts that he needs that help that that other person it's so it's it's interesting to me that that he's so yeah he's so unilaterally fixed on this one 
narrow idea that he can't yeah it seems so obvious yeah I don't know. Well, well, well and it would even make sense because the moment that he achieves his goal then his map flips upside down like dante going up lucifer uh, at the bottom slash top of a hell um because the way down is the way up yeah. because as he's been going down the whole time he's actually been going up towards a new hemisphere towards a new way of life and so so if he achieves his goal what then He's yeah. like the Joker in yeah. his Luciferian aspect. He wants to chase the car, but what happens when he gets the car? <laughs> well, then his role in rea- reality changes, and therefore his role in reality changes, and therefore the map that's already been produced for him, the Cain, the Lucifer, the Joker, Heath Ledger version, does, <laughs> uh, he has to change. Yeah. He can no longer be trying to destroy the status quo because he no longer knows what the status quo is. He has destroyed it. He has changed everything. And so the map that was already pre-made for him that he never learned how to add to himself, which was the whole point, would no longer serve him. And so that would be a moment of just as great terror for him as for everybody else, which suggests that the villain needs the system he wishes to destroy just as much as the system needs the villain in order to produce the hero Mm -hmm. who brings the level of consciousness of a people up up to the next stage. Yeah, that's... Um, that's interesting. Like so, when when the city is destroyed, flight doesn't disappear, right? It's just that you don't have these right. magic these magic scientific crystals anymore. Ah, so yes, you're right. So the ideal now exists that gives us the 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 orientation necessary to to direct our wills and intellects and unified vision towards, so that we can produce something like that, but better. Yeah. Because once it's been created. And this is a, a motif repeated in the terrible movie called Steam Boy. Uh, <laughs> it exists then for an ideal forever. And it's even more useful as an ideal than it is as a reality because as a reality, it can be used to destroy, but as an ideal, it will be used to create. Yeah. And I would say that's sort of the relationship of Rome to Roman Catholicism, that, Roman, that the Romans become the, the abstracted golden age mm. towards which, the, or heaven ideal towards which, uh, the Roman Catholics are are subjected, or or rather, uh, aspire towards in a structured and very ordered way. It's to me, it's like the power of people to understand what had been taken literally and turn it into metaphor, which seems to be the mm. life-saving thing here. It's like because what happens is like the crystal again isn't actually destroyed because it flies up and it hits the tree, which is so strong that it won't be destroyed the way the city was destroyed. Instead, the tree and the crystal like float off into this kind of, you know, yeah, like Neverland, this, this imaginary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they're in some sense, they're still there, but it's it's no longer a, a place to literally get to. Instead, right. it's, it's no longer symbol. Edenic or it's no yeah. longer naively embodied. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I find I find that so interesting that you, you see that image and it's and it's, of course, very powerful because it's so symbolic, you know. Christianity likes the tree as well, but so, but there, there's, there's no longer an attempt to, to literally get there. Instead, you're, you're doing your own thing, uh, flying around and um, making the world a better place. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, you realize that the kingdom of heaven is all around you, and it, it, and but those don't see it, or that you can define your own path now, rather than literally everybody trying to go to Laputa, mm-hmm. and then you win. You can define your own path because there's not a super destroying God heaven 
uh, that can shoot lasers down at everybody. Uh, and, and you also have the freedom to pursue a course of action that might lead to that at some point. Mm-hmm. Because it also strikes me as sort of the metaphor of the dawn and the dusk. That just as when the dragon is destroyed, he comes back as, as a, a small little serpent and everything happens again. Mm-hmm. Same with the good things, the embodiment of heaven once it's destroyed in sort of a Jesus-like fashion. It then remains as an ideal, unembodied or disembodied, to be, di- to be embodied again in a positive way. So just like evil can be re-embodied, just like Voldemort goes from fairly disembodied to completely embodied and reinvigorated by the end of Harry Potter, so can that happen on the good spectrum where like a figure of good or an ideal disappears. Its embodiment in the world disappears, but it can then be re-embodied from its disembodied form through the actions and uh, goals and values of man. Yeah. Yeah, right. These these metaphors are no less real. They just are embodied in a slightly different fashion <laughs> than uh, than the flying laser. Yeah, they exist in the ether. They exist in the ether, still in the books. They're still in the information flow, but they're not enacted yeah. in the world at all times. And the moment that something is no longer enacted, we seem to believe that it's, it is simply a metaphor or simply a story. Mm-hmm. Um, forgetting why we keep stories around because they represent truths that we have known and wished to keep forever essentially yeah and so even if something is not embodied much or even seemingly at all that does not mean it cannot be embodied again on the good and bad spectrum so in harry potter i mean voldemort can come back you know the devil can come back but in uh castle in the sky you know good can come back the hero can come back the genius can yeah. return. Yeah. Um, these these archetypes are never exhausted. The cup overfloweth, as it were. Uh-huh. It uh, it just remains for each human to find the path necessary through the maze, the labyrinth of life, in order to embody it in their specific social and highly complex and sophisticated way. Yeah. So, um, do you think do you think that the um, the song there like they're um, speaking of those words together. Um, how does that? I, mean, I saw that as sort of a harmony as, as speaking words of oath to each other, like a marriage. And there were several metaphors of marriage between them, like him catching her at first down from heaven and her like touching the ground mm-hmm. and him also being literally tethered to her at one point, um, as well as steering the ship during the storm. Yeah. with her next uh, him. And uh, so I, I thought when they said those words together that they were making that concept or that story one together, that she was joining him to her through making him part of her family through re- not only teaching him, but then repeating with him the tradition of her past. And so connecting him to the tradition of her people um, in a, you know, a formalized, uh, verbal way like a wedding yeah yeah I, it seems like that's a good like a good alternative or sort of mirror image there for for the kind of the secret book you know that muska is following throughout the, the film mm-hmm. and his his desire to use the crystal to read and read into the, oh, that's the fascinating because the most secret book would always be the 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 other the opposite other the other sex or gender which has information and a way of seeing the world 
that produces information that you would never yourself have. And so uh, the, the true book, the greatest giver of truth would be that person who has the perspective that is opposite to yours and therefore complements yours and gives you a full vision of the world rather than a static, old, uh, out of date version of the world that doesn't help you to see it for what it is currently. Yeah. Oh man, that's pretty good. Like, yeah, I feel like students have intuitively realized this and refuse to read books as a result. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I like that it's a it's a kind of a sing, a singing image as a, it's you take you you give words such a different meaning when they're sung versus when they're merely read uh, or spoken. Yeah. They are more embodied, and I I've heard that's a criticism of our American English tongue mm. that we we speak with all we're all mouth. And, um, you know, and I guess we, in many ways, can be all talk. Uh, and so, yeah, when you sing, when you lift your voice, it's also such a communal endeavor, right? You mostly sing with other people on a choral sort of feat. At least when you're singing in front of others, you're usually with others while you do it. It's yeah. uh, rarer to be alone. It takes a lot of bravery hmm. to do that. It's, it's interesting. It's almost as if it... I mean, I suppose it is your roar. It is your voice. It is very much an aspect of yourself, just as your arms are. And um, yeah. since since we do hear beautiful representations of it so frequently and so easily through our radios and now our podcasts and um, YouTube yeah. and Pandora and Spotify and all those services, it uh, the standard is very high. And so the the possibility of shame and embarrassment at raising one's voice is, is fairly high. But no, and I agree. And yeah, I know that you are a big Tolkien fan. And that's something I've always liked about the Silmarillion, oh, yeah. which also features crystals, but yeah. that the divine being sings. Yes. The uh, sings the, the universe into existence. Right. You know, that's very similar to what Homer does, you know, sing muse mm -hmm. and singing seems to have the aspect of flow more than simply speaking does the like the aspect of a river like it represents the river of consciousness and it gives a fuller more, more robust experience uh, uh and uh more of a concept of meaning yeah. comes out through it um and not simply through the words but through the tone and the ache of the voice and there's so much in there that is hard to parse out that leads to an experience which is effect which is much richer and deeper than simple language and like you said as a teacher for the kids they won't read the books but they'll listen to all the music yeah yeah or even or even they'll they'll be they'll be fine as long as they get to um sort of uh see, see a chance to have their voice heard so to speak right like as long as they think there's like a right answer that you're looking for the the conversation is dead but as soon as they are actually like exchanging ideas then it then it comes to life you know and and there's like something at stake again um to, to me there's just yeah, such it's a, not just getting through a performance yeah, a script yeah such a but there's no kind of life yeah it's like so when you're actually exchanging ideas it's like you're adapting to the situation anew with another person and seeing how they adapt and also mimicking their adaptive mm. patterns mm -hmm. and thus sort of it's like you're threading the the web of story which connects all people together in your own small way in your own small corner at that moment and so you're both being both the creator and recipient of culture yeah and that that seems to be well, that's what we're trying to do, right? I think so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, I haven't got the musical or artistic ability to create a, a castle in the sky like thing, but I, I can sure, surely appreciate it. And 
I, I do love to get to talk about these old movies with you. It's, and yeah, video games, we've got to, got to get to those. I think this summer uh, will be, uh, will be a chance to start on that. Uh, which one is the next one in our, what, I mean, the natural one seems like Nausicaa. Is that what you're yes, thinking? Yes. I think I was thinking that too. Um, I was looking with longing at the cat returns, which I've now realized is not Hayao Miyazaki. And I know that we have the wind. Let's see. Oh yes. We have Ponyo too. Ponyo oh, yeah. too. Ah, both of those I really like. I really like. So if we were putting it between Ponyo and Nausicaa, which one, well, let's, which one would you like? I think we should do Ponyo. I think again, we should err on the side of not doing ones that are too similar back to back. Yes. Yeah. Let's, let's do Ponyo instead. Cause that's, oh man, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so beautiful. And I love watching that storm scene yeah. in it. And I, I, I have to say that the first time I ever watched Castle in the Sky, I didn't like it as much as what I had all, I had also just watched Spirited Away uh -huh. and Princess Mononoke for the first time. And uh, those are such tower, towering achievements. Yeah, it's tough to stack up against. <laughs> it's, it's taken me some time to be able to understand more the symbols of yeah. Castle in the Sky, just like Hal's moving castle. It's not, it's mm -hmm. not as good want to go see a good concrete movie i would say that those aren't the, the absolute best yeah um yeah. But that if if you know you like narrative for the sake of creative expression and just like to go watch symbols flash in front of you in a weird and interesting way that sort of makes sense once you think about it yeah. they're good for that yeah i think ponyo is going to be that sort of movie and i'm looking forward to, i mean it's even i mean it takes place mostly in an ocean right like yeah. a place where distinctions start to blur exactly um and so, you know, it's, it's a big task to try and tell a story where you're suggesting that it's so hard to tell it because it's at the edge of your consciousness the entire time that your words might not make sense. Like how Dante describes his attempt at describing heaven and the Paradiso, yeah. that everything he says is going to fall short of what he actually experienced because he has, because he's bound by his words and his human intellect is too small to represent what he's actually experienced and so he's sort of like the first existentialist in that way right that his experience is more real than his intellect and so he's just going to do his best with this feeble little weak intellect and so he has yeah. the appropriate humility to do the task yes. correctly the the ineffable ineffability topos is that right that's what mazata yes. calls it and so it, it's it's the thing by which your effort and your failure emphasize the greatness of the attempt right i just love that yeah yes. as, a, as a as a kind of encapsulation of the artistic you know pursuit well, that's the perfect, that's the perfect aspect of the golden chain the homeric chain because if you are always doomed to failure you are always fated for the greatest possible success which is providing the necessary lodestone to produce the next iteration of yourself mm. uh through next person capable of producing uh creatively with the logos yeah. by because you fail to write something complete you leave room for growth in the next sort of version yeah. of you and you get to choose what line or what sort of person you want to be if you want to be an epic poet you just have to put the work in and have some skill uh -huh. and then you know join up uh, it just takes time um but th that seems to be the point of and you need to start watching westworld westworld but also <laughs> like say the existentialists yeah. saying that existence precedes essence mm -hmm. precisely because essence like laputa as ideal not as practical reality is that towards which you strive in order 
to better understand yourself. So it is not so much the thing you strive towards, which you care about so much as what you learn about yourself and your own nature in the pursuit. And that's why it has to be necessarily difficult and a high enough ideal and also formed specifically to you because of your slightly unique, but also general and universal nature. Um, Yeah. And so that seems, that seems pretty cool because that's both freedom and constraint, both of which are necessary for a good game. Um, Well, if that's all in Westworld, maybe I'll start watching Westworld. Yeah. (laughs) You must. Conversations we could have after you listen to Babcock and I talk, I think, I think you would, you would have a lot to offer and I think it has a lot to offer you. So it would be a good marriage. Uh-huh. Right on. Uh, so perhaps that's what the, the Unio Mystica of the unions is and the, and the alchemists. Mm-hmm. You plus new information is the holy marriage or the hieroskamos. Mm-hmm. That you become a new being, but also the information is given new body or new life through being embodied in a living being. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Well, humans are sure weird, and we end up doing things like talking about castle in the sky and talking about how we can be wedded to things like information. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Mr. West Chance has been wonderful again. We've got you on episode sixty-one. We'll we'll have to get you on one of these special episodes. It seems like Bab- Babcock always gets penciled in for those for like the episode fifty or seventy-five or something like that. Uh, so we have to get you on like one hundred. Also. To tell the listeners, um, we were thinking, Mr. West Chance and I, about talking some Harry Potter with Miss Sarah Miller. We haven't asked her yet, but she's been very eager in the past. And so we're going we're gonna to see if we can get her on here. And Mr. West Chance, I'd love to do that very soon. I could start contacting her pretty much immediately. Yeah, uh, I, I assume she's on summer break as well, being a teacher. So if she's got time, this seems like a good time to start. Yeah. All right. Well, wonderful. And thank you again. And uh, well, I'm looking forward to talking Ponyo. Yeah. Yep. And Bookworm Games next couple of days. And Bookworm Games. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'll get a chance to be on your show. I can't wait. I'll be I'll, I'll, I'll dress. I'll, I'll, I'll act appropriately. I promise. And uh, <laughs> That's neither here nor there. So yeah, as appropriately as can still be maintained within the scope of having fun. Being being yourself. Yeah. Right on. All right. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Bye.